Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that will help you maximize your leadership role or prepare you for the next nonprofit job you're considering. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I'm happy to bring you ideas and resources so you can build your professional development plan. Fundraising, of course, is on every nonprofit leader's mind right now, and I'm delighted to bring you this week's conversation with Jason Lewis, who literally wrote a book on fundraising called The War for Fundraising Talent, and he's having conversations with folks all over the world about how they are managing fundraising in this very uncertain time. As you'll see, many of the topics Jason raised in his book are certainly relevant now. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode, number 33. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find all the resources, links, and books Jason and I discuss in addition to his own, as well as information on the good work Jason's doing at Responsive Fundraising. Speaking of resources, if you need someone to talk to about your professional journey or what your nonprofit is doing right now, feel free to go to our webpage again and look at the blue box on the homepage, Need a Coach, and we'd be happy to schedule a conversation, no obligation, to talk about how we might be able to help you. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jason Lewis. Jason, thanks for joining me on the path. Uh, delighted to be here, Pat, and you and I have enjoyed some conversation ahead of time, so I think we're really teed up for this conversation today. Indeed, I'm excited to glean some of the knowledge, frankly, <laughs> you've been sharing with people all over the world who are trying to fundraise in a very uncertain time, and I'm struck by the fact a lot of the advice that you're offering very much relates to your book, and I'm certainly going to lift it up, The War for Fundraising Talent, but before we talk about that and some of the related issues uh, tell me and our listeners, how'd you get on the nonprofit path? So Patton, I, my wife and I met and married in Savannah, Georgia, uh, 20, 22 years ago. And, uh, we, my wife was working for a parachurch organization that actually only employed service, served women and, and, and therefore, uh, only employed women. So it was not an opportunity and I was a young guy, so it was probably not an appropriate <laughs> role for me to play, yeah. um, or, or place to look for a job. And, uh, I was actually stumbling my way through finishing college at the same time. So we, uh, we happened upon an opportunity in a, at a children's home in the Southwest corner of Virginia. Um, to work in the program to be what are called uh, junior house parents, I guess you could say. So we were actually living with the children. These are young children who are basically in sort of a, what is a modern day orphanage. And um, we, we worked there uh, for about four and a half years, but about nine months into the job, it was sort of a, a conclusion that I came to that uh, and my boss came to that I really didn't have the patience for the direct service for working uh, directly with the kids. I just didn't have the patience. Yep. Um, I was almost more like a big goofy brother, big brother uh, rather than <laughs> a parent. And my wife and I weren't parents at the time. So um, it, so it sort of made sense that maybe uh, uh, this wasn't the right fit. And I, in the develop, coincidentally, the development job opened up as they often do. They turn over pretty quickly, especially in these smaller shops. Yep. And so uh, I didn't know what fundraising was. I had no idea how this you know, million and a half, $2 million operation was funded. And uh, all of a sudden they were sort of pulling back the curtain and saying, we got this job and it's a pretty particularly important job. And we'll pay you to, we'll, we'll pay for you to go to some training and et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and, and it all sort of came, it's all sort of went from there. And I, I eventually finished college. I actually went to grad school, uh, and, and did my master's thesis, uh, on small shop fundraising and really started to think critically about what was going on. Uh, made a, as you read in my book, I made a premature jump into, uh, into consulting, working with a bozo who really was just, uh, didn't exactly work out, did it? Yeah, yeah it didn't exactly work out. We won't tell everybody the, uh, we won't give any spoilers. Yeah, um, right. And, uh, uh, but that was a good, that, that particular experience was sort of a turning experience for me and starting to think through how it is consultants, people like you and I really uh, help nonprofit organizations. I started to think very critically about what it is we were doing. And, um, and so, uh, uh I made that I made that mistake. Uh, jump back into a job. Uh, you know, fundraising professionals. We oftentimes recover very quickly. There's never any shortage of jobs as long as we know how to do the job. Yep. Um, and then I relaunched myself uh, six years ago with a business partner, and now have uh, launched responsive fundraising in the last twelve months, and uh, and feeling pretty good about it. Um, Absolutely. So that kind of I, I think that gets you to. To, uh, from the point at which uh, I knew what the nonprofit sector was to today in about three and a half minutes. So uh, it's, it's excellent. And it, I'm struck by a quote in your book and maybe in some of your other communication where you did all the right things. And I'm using air quotes for our listeners who can't sure. see us. Um, <laughs> but, but you knew that it wasn't quite right. Can, can you talk about, I guess that's when you first came upon some of these antiquated fundraising philosophies that you realized firsthand weren't working. You know, Patton, I've never uh, put this in writing, uh, but I teach this over at the college. So I teach some undergraduate students in, uh, in the nonprofit program over at the college. And what I never thought was, what I, have, what I remain to think is not right, um, is that the nonprofit sector, um, and this is theory that we teach in a classroom, right. um, exists as sort of this counterbalance or this sort of resolution for what the government uh, for the, what the private sector and the, and, the, and, the, and the government can't do for us. So what we expect Washington to do for us, um, generally that's what we think of them doing and generally that's paid for through taxes. And then when we think of the private sector, you know what we expect the department store and the grocery store to sell us um, and the movie theater to sell us, um, you know, we sort of expect that to work and that's when we behave like consumers. But I don't think that the nonprofit sector sort of understands its role. I don't think we've gotten that right. I don't think we understand that we're not supposed to behave like the federal government or state or, you know, local governments. And I don't think we understand that we're not supposed to behave like, you know, Walmart or Target or McDonald's. Um, I, I think we get all those confused because yep. there's no... Uh, because the nonprofit sector tends to be sort of the least mature of the three, I guess you could say, as a sector, um, we don't really have any really great examples. There's certainly some out there, um, but um, there's always this sort of um, this identity crisis that's sort of always lingering around, like who are we and what are we supposed to be doing and what 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 models, business models, if you will, are we supposed to be using to sort of to sort of get away with what we're doing. That's, that's what I mean when I sort of, you generally talk about what we can't get right. And, and, and you've referenced too, I mean, is there a dependence on other sectors and you advocate for, is it a more business mindset 
that so we are not kind of dependent on and and then we get into desperation fundraising is that i actually no it's not i'm i'm not the guy who i'm not the guy who's reaching out to washington for subsidies um but i'm also not the guy i'm nor am i the guy who wants to say we need to all get in the business of social entrepreneurship and start small businesses um i think if you're the nonprofit organization that's trying to resolve some of our society's greatest issues you don't need to get into the business of trying to compete with McDonald's or, or anybody else. Um, and so I, I think we, and, and I think that's where fundraising comes down, it really becomes the issue. I want organizations to learn how to fundraise really well. Um, and typically what you see when they're chasing after subsidies from the government or when they're chasing after the idea of being entrepreneurial, like, a, like competing with the private sector, they're typically also signaling that we really don't want to get really good at fundraising. Yep. Um, and I think yep. philanthropy can be that unique, philanthropy is that unique revenue stream, if you will, um, that the private sector doesn't do and that the government doesn't do that we should get really good at, but we don't really want to get good at it because it comes with different sort of implications. And I talk about all that in the book. Um, It has different things to it. And so we're always reaching to these other revenue streams that are in many ways sort of designated for those other sectors. Uh, does that make sense? Not staying in our lane, our philanthropic yeah, lane, perhaps. Yeah, right, right, right. We don't really want to sort of own up to the identity that we have. Um, you know, uh, fun, you know, uh, you know, Walmart, Walmart, and Target are in the business of selling <clears throat> my wife and I groceries and you know cleaning products and stuff and such. And so the two, those two companies sort of compete with each other, right. um, and they know how to do that relatively well. Um, and, uh, they have shareholders and, you know, they, they've got a quote unquote business model that's designed for what they do. Um, I don't think that it's in the business. It's in the best interest of the nonprofit sector to try to insert ourselves in some weird way, um, sort of weird, strange convoluted sort of way into those sort of frameworks. Um, there's, there's nothing that we're going to ever be able to do in the nonprofit sector that's ever going to work uh, in comparison to the way Walmart and Target compete with each other, nor are we ever going to be able to deliver on services at the scale uh, that the federal government might when it can sort of enforce taxation. Um, And so we've got to think, okay, uh, our revenues are, are, can and should be, you know, charitable dollars. That's our source. Um, can we settle into that and then get really good at that? And that's um, that's some of the underlying themes in that book. And that's certainly the message I'm pushing out there. Um, but but I don't even know that you know I'm thinking about everything I've said in the last ten minutes. I don't I don't even know if some people out there who are listening to the things that I've got to say are even sort of hearing all that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that I've pulled back the curtain that much. I think yeah. you have, and because I'm struck by, I underline the phrase you use, the, the uh, over-reliance on arm's length fundraising. And I suppose a lot of our listeners, executive directors, aspiring executive directors, I, I guess, Jason, the, the efficiency of kind of volume fundraising efforts makes sense at some level, but it's exactly what you see as the problem, right? As opposed to the relationship-based fundraising well, more nonprofits need to do. Well, the efficiency is what 
efficiency, you know, at the lowest cost at the highest volume, if you can sort of, if you allow efficiency to be defined very narrowly, uh, and, and there's certainly a, you could go in anyway. So if you rely on that sort of definition of what efficiency is, how do we deliver on whatever it is, product or service at the highest cost and the lowest volume? That's what I expect of the private sector. That's what I expect of Target and Walmart. Right. Um, I expect them to sell me um, sell me and every other consumer in the marketplace who wants to buy a stick of deodorant, that stick of deodorant at the highest volume at the lowest cost. Um, and, and that, and efficiency doesn't even work for the federal government. When we think about delivering on services, efficiency isn't even a, a, an ideal metric for them because they're trying to, with the help of taxation, trying to deliver on services that sort of app, that's sort of desirable for the average, you know, constituent. Um, and, and if the average constituent in your, you know, area doesn't necessarily agree with or desire whatever it is you're legislating for, um, then efficiency hasn't done its job. Where efficiency become, becomes particularly problematic for the nonprofit sector is, is that generally where efficiency fails us it, in, the, in the economy, where efficiency fails us is generally where the nonprofit sector is called upon to to step up and meet a need. Yep. And so, you know, whereas, whereas Walmart and targets can sell products, you know, products to the average consumer who can afford to buy them, the food bank is stepping in and saying, we're going to give product, food products to people who can't afford to buy them at Walmart or Target. And so if the, the efficiency model is, should not, the value of efficiency as sort of this cardinal virtue should not be carried over from Walmart to the food bank. Right. Um, the, what the food bank is doing is essentially signaling to the world that there are things that we value as a society that are inefficient. And, um, and so we've got all these, you know, we've got these, we've got this convoluted mess of values that ha had we, had we step and this gets all the way back to what I share with my students, the nonprofit sector has not so grown up to the point where it's actually thought through its own identity to the point where it doesn't sort of own these these virtues that other, you know, sectors probably rightfully, or at least more legitimately can sort of hold on to. That's exactly right. So as a fundraiser now, whether I'm executive director, development director, whatever my title is, should I be focused on fewer donors or is this a time for expansion? Um, yes and no. I, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with, uh, I, I tend to think that the, the, the more, the more you're trying to accumulate donors, the less likely you are to um, uh, be able to respond to those donors in a meaningful way. So I think there's a, I think there has to be a limit or a cap or a constraint. Yeah. You know, we talk yeah. about in an, you know, in general economics courses, you would learn, uh, you know, general principles of constraints. And, and a lot of us don't like to think in the, in the nonprofit sector where our job is to save the world that we should have put some constraints on ourselves, but it's actually sometimes the constraints, the limits we put on ourselves that actually enable us to do things really well. Yep. It's like, it's, it's like the choice me and my wife made, you know, we said we can do four kids. So we've got four kids. If we had four more, we probably <laughs> maybe wouldn't be doing parenting as well as we <laughs> think we're doing now. Exactly. Um, and so we put these constraints on our sort of the way we operate. And, and so back to your question, if, if, if organizations would say, okay, we ideally in an ideal world, um, we need X number of donors in order to, 
you know, in, in order to accomplish our mission. And then they pursued that ideal number and, and, and they actually set a standard for those donors. They said, we need an, you know, an ideal donor needs to look like this. And some of them need to be giving at this level and others need to be giving at this level. Then they arrive at this sort of this idea, you know, as close to they possibly can to this ideal definition of a donor for themselves. And then they don't have to be in this constant accumulation because this constant accumulation of donors turns into this sort of this. Churn uh, you know, too, and right? Well, churn the, them over. Well, what you're doing is you're actually, what you're really doing is you're getting in trouble with the sort of, you're, you're constantly lowering the bar, lowering expectations to sort of that lowest common denominator. So you're, yep. as, as you want to welcome in every particular donor that wants to come in the door, what you're doing is, is you're just lowering expectations. And I'm not saying that the $25 donor should not be given a place in your constituency, in your donor pool. Um, but there is a place where you have to say, okay, um, you know, a donor who only wants to give us $25 and never give us $25 again, and, and, and never contribute in any other meaningful way, and really doesn't have a desire to, you know, advocate or, you know, uh, they don't want to play anything. They, all they want to do is throw $25 at you. Um, that's the donor that I think is the most problematic. Exactly. Um, and, but, but the, but the, but the flip, the flip side can be just as dangerous. So that's the, that's the organization who has too few donors who are no more engaged and might be writing significantly larger checks but the organization gets very comfortable with 10 or 12 donors. I've seen this in, in, in a couple of my, my jobs here where I live currently. They're vulnerable, um, or, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They, they become very dependent upon a list, a lucky list of 10 or 12 donors. They don't build meaningful, they take them for granted and the donors in some ways take them for granted. Um, I, I see it sort of almost like a strange sort of codependent relationship between two people who are not meeting the other person's expectations. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of relationship dynamics that are, are, are relatively dysfunctional in the nonprofit sector between us and our donors, and we don't really want to own up to it. And so in, in, instead, we come up with these other ways of sort of framing things like, should we act like businesses or should we act like the federal government? And that's exactly what you're not saying is necessarily the right. answer either. Right. <laughs> well, I love the fact you, you use a phrase, and again, talking to a lot of executive directors now and ones that uh, perhaps looking to move into that role. Um, you think in the future, executive directors are not going to accept what you term as overwhelming job descriptions. Can, can you speak to that? What you see a lot of quote, overwhelming job descriptions where we're expecting too much and therefore not effective leadership? Yeah. So I remember when I was, so I'm the son of a, my dad was in the U.S. Coast Guard. So I grew up as a military kid and, uh, and he was in the U.S. Coast Guard. And anybody who knows the U.S. Coast Guard knows that these, these boats, uh, the U.S. Coast Guard operates with these smaller boats. So there's never more than, um, you know, some, some of these groups that, uh, the, the people on a, on any boat could be 12 or 15 people, you know, small staff, you might say, and my dad would give me the right term, but we'll, <laughs> um, <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the, the, the people who are, who are sort of in charge of a small boat tend to be, there's two people on that boat. The exact, it's what they call an XO and a CO, a commanding officer and an executive officer. And I think that, I think the thing that Knight would be of particular interest to your group, as it relates to your question, your audience, Pat, 
is the idea that I think there's always been this tension between what I would call a CO, a commanding officer, which tends to be a more externally focused, off the boat, um, uh, uh, political community role. facing kind of. Well, yeah, it's a yes, yeah. it's a commit, it's a community facing role, and yeah. then the XO, which is the executive officer, which is the one who's actually managing the people and telling people what to do, and usually is the better people purse, the better people manager, process manager. Now, interestingly. Um, what the what the U.S. Coast Guard and any other sort of uh, uh, you know hierarchical sort of scenario sort of does is that commanding officer is actually the senior most person on that boat, but that person really is again it's an externally focused um, <clears throat> externally focused commanding officer who is very political and knows how to leave the ship. And that XO knows how to sail the ship while the commanding officer is away. So the commanding officer can actually hop up, you know, can, a, a helicopter can come out, pick up that commanding officer, take him or her to Washington. Yeah. And that XO can assume all responsibilities of that boat. And that boat is going to sail perfectly well. In fact, it might sail actually better when the commanding officer is away. Because the commanding officer tends to be that big visionary, um, sometimes very arrogant, sometimes over, you know, thinks that they can take on the world. So all the roles, all the strengths that the commanding officer has that works really well with the general public, with the sort of the, the politic, with the, you know, everything that everybody else wants to hear doesn't generally make a whole lot of sense sometimes when you're talking to a staff of 12 or 15 people that are trying to sail a small little boat in the middle of the ocean. <clears throat> and so I think as this gets back to your question, I think the future of fundraising and the future of the nonprofit sector as it relates to the executive director is I think we're going to figure out this shared leadership dynamic where we hire COs, commanding officers. So this would be the senior most person on the boat who's going to be more externally focused, um, but is not going to have the responsibilities of being the sort of the chief program office, chief program officer. Yep. Um, and they're not going to need to know how to sail the ship perfectly well. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the quote unquote number two, if you will, um, and this really, this is not really about people who, you know, the, the, these two people share this role in many ways. This is what, this is what anybody who reads about shared leadership will understand is that that XO is a very talented individual who knows how to run that ship and run that staff and make sure that whatever those deliverables are for that ship um, are necessary um, actually happen. But that's a different dynamic than you think about when you think about the average small nonprofit organization that you and I might be talking to. Um, it's almost reverse. Um, and, and that dynamic from a, uh, staffing. I mean, when you, when you, when you, when you start to get your head wrapped around the way these two individuals in the framework, I just described dance yep. and the way that they sort of respect each other's roles. Um, it's almost like the same dynamic you'll see at a university where you'll see a, um, a president who tends to be a more externally focused, focused, um, you know, fundraising oriented sort of president and a, and a chancellor who is the academic leader, who's really running the, running the show. Absolutely. Uh, who's hiring the who's hiring the faculty and the deans and calling the shots on grade point averages and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, provost in some cases. Yes, right? provost, right. The, right. Those, those sort of academic, those sort of prestigious academic titles. Right. Um, those tend to be the people, and, and you could apply this to healthcare as well. So if you if you look at the way this is going to play out, I think this is going to become more and more normal um, in the nonprofit sector across the board. Um, this fundraising, this externally focused fundraising CEO, we're already seeing it in education, and we're and we're we've been seeing it in uh, healthcare as well. Where the where the senior the senior officer, if you will, at a hospital is a is a is a healthcare MBA type who knows how to relinquish control and leadership to a quote unquote number two to run that hospital, um, and it really comes down to shared leadership, and it doesn't become this question of who's really in charge. It just comes down to how do we get the best characteristics out of people that you generally can't get in one person. You're, you're just not going to be able to get one person who can wear all these hats. And you think a lot of nonprofits are, are guilty of exactly that, frankly, stretching their senior leader too thin, trying to do both roles. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think we were, I don't think we as human beings are designed that way. You know, if you, right. if, if, if you want to go sort of down the, 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 how did God make me sort of path, or if you want to go down the Myers Briggs or the, you know, disc profile, it, it doesn't matter sort of uh, what path you go down in terms of understanding ourselves and being aware and all that sort of stuff. I don't think we as human beings are designed to play both of some of these roles that I'm describing. There's a reason why these, like with the example with my father and his boat experiences, there's a reason why they had two individuals playing these roles. And these were two distinctively different people with different strengths and weaknesses. And right. what, and what the, and what the organizations were doing is, is that they were aligning both those strengths and weaknesses with those individuals and with the goals and, and aspirations of the organization. Um, we're trying to, and, and this loops all the way back to where we started when efficiency is your goal, you're going to try to get more out of one individual than you would out of a shared leadership team. Um, and so if you want to ask, if you want to, if you want to ask the question, I've never written this down patent, but you got me thinking, you got me <laughs> chattering here. Good, good. Um, if you want to ask the question, why do organizations get stuck in arm's length fundraising? Why are they overly addicted to the notion of always accumulating donors? I bet you it traces all the way back for some, a lot of, for a lot of organizations to having the wrong CEO. Right. Um, and they have the wrong individual in that seat. If that individual was the right person, that person would know how to strategically think through, okay, what's the ideal number of donors that I need and where should I be prioritizing my time um, to be in front of those donors instead of always being in front of the program. And relying on what direct mail and special events and other kind of volume transactional events. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you, you're talking to a, a, a nonprofit, sort of executive, you know, senior leader type role, I'm generally talking to the fundraising professional. And I'm saying that if you don't, if you don't get your head wrapped around sort of some of the frameworks that we're talking about here, uh, what you end up doing is you end up significantly marginalizing the role of the fundraiser. Um, and so if Great you don't, if, if you don't put that, if you don't put that, yeah, I, I'm never advocating to the point where I, I'm saying that the fundraiser has to be the boss, but if the fundraiser is not going to be the boss, which is to say they're not going to be that fundraising CEO type who is the person who's reporting to the board, then the person who is hiring that individual has to understand that the degree to which they 
um, elevate or, uh, or, or, or um, the degree to which they elevate that person to assume leadership and to be present within the organization um, is ultimately going to reflect on the way that the organization relates to its donors. Um, and the more we sort of squash down that role, it, it, it inadvertently ends up squashing the relationship that the organization has with the donors. Great point. Um, yeah. And leadership yeah. needs to reflect that. And well, it, before I forget, I have to lift up the Coast Guard reference. Uh, I okay. Coast City, North Carolina, Jason, which I believe still has one of the largest Coast Guard bases in the country. So I am a big fan of the Coast Guard profession and delighted you use that uh, reference in our leadership discussion here. Um, oh, yeah. So, so yeah, growing up as a, a coasty kid, uh, you grow up <laughs> on those coastal cities like Elizabeth City. So Indeed. We, we were never in the uh, we were never on the North Carolina coast, uh, but we were um, which my wife and I have developed a great fond uh, become very fond of ourselves in terms of vacation, yes. vacationing out on the Outer Banks. Um, but um, but yeah, it's, it's a coastal job. So you live anywhere around the country. Um, I graduated high school in Astoria, Oregon. We were in Juneau for a year. We were wow. uh, down on the South. Co- we were down on the Gulf Coast in Mobile for two assignments. I graduated high school. I went to high school, some of my high school in uh, Savannah, Georgia. So you get all speaking these coastal, these yeah, coastal experiences. Of coastal communities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jason, let me back to our leaders uh, that you are interacting with many of. Given the uncertainty of the current situation, are you seeing good examples of leadership now? What are the best nonprofits doing given all of this unprecedented activity that they're having to endure? Yeah, honestly, I haven't. Uh, we've all been socially isolated and, and clammed up in our in our homes. And, and so <laughs> right. honestly, the, the, the only communications I'm seeing and hearing are probably a lot of the same communications that we're all seeing and hearing, whether it be on you know, television or the internet or social media or something. And, and, and I think the nonprofit sector, just like all the sectors tends to have those moments like this, where people, you know, where leadership gets to step up. Um, yeah, is but, there opportunity here? Is there opportunity? I think, I, I think there is, but yeah. I think, I think, the, I think this is an opportunity for, for sort of a new, even for a new leader to step up and sort of take to maybe absorb some of the ideas that, a guy like you or a guy like me might be putting out there um, and, and for a new leader to rise up. But I will say this, I, I think I have made my entire career um, inadvertently a sort of a study of what it means to be a nonprofit leader and a, and a very talented fundraising professional. Yep. And, and I have, what, what I feel fortunate to have seen is that whether it was good times or bad, there have been in my 20, 20, close to 25 years now of watching the nonprofit sector, there are plenty of examples that I have seen of what good leadership in say hard times looks like. Um, and it doesn't, te- it doesn't tend to be this fatalistic, the sky is falling sort of um, leader. Right. Um, it does tend to be in my mind, a more externally focused, be out in the community, know the community. So it is this fundraising CEO type, but it also tends to be a leader who's not reaching to where I started. It also tends to be a leader who is not reaching for the government or for the private sector to rescue them. 
Um, and that tends to be my biggest critique on what I'm seeing right now is I'm seeing a sector that seems to want Washington to save them. Yep. And, that, and that loops us all the way back to where we started. I just don't think that the nonprofit sector is founded on, perp, on, on with a, I don't think from our founding purposes, I don't think that's why we exist to have ultimately um, big bailout checks, you know, be what sort of sustains us. Um, I, I think we need to step back and sort of say, um, you know, maybe we need to be challenged, challenged ourselves, but challenging our donors to actually be providing some of that support that maybe we're turning to Washington to provide. And thus be more self-sufficient through our philanthropy and not kind of codependent yeah, right, on right. government but, funding. Right. But if you're, but if you're dependent on gov government funding, that to me is just a signal. If, if, if you're asking for bailouts from the government right now, that's just a signal to me that you haven't been doing fundraising really well. Um, if, if you, if you've become so dependent upon, yeah, yeah, yeah it, right. Exactly. And so to me, the organization that's saying to, to, to a grant writer, for example, Hey, can you write this grant so we can get some federal funding to flow in here is the organization that has not learned how to take people out to lunch and ask for more meaningful gifts. Right. Um, and right. because, and, and, and that also, and, and let's think about that a little bit further here. Um, how many of us have, have, have taken that donor out to lunch, asked for a meaningful gift, and in the process realized that that donor wants us to have no strings attached or very minimal strings attached to that donor, I mean, to the federal government? Um, I, I, think we, I, think we ha I think our organizations have got to better reflect the values of where the funding's coming from. And so if, if your donors are saying, we'll write you some generous checks, but as a result, the same reason I can write you this check is because I've decided myself not to be dependent upon subsidies coming from the government. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And it's, yeah. it's yeah. thought provoking and it's exactly yeah. what I knew you would be willing to, yeah. to talk about. And, uh, I've read too much. So I, t I tend to, to ride the, um, I, I tend to be very, what, what we would refer to as very libertarian um, in my, in my political thinking. And, and sure. if you, and if you read through anything that I'm writing, speaking, saying, talking about, um, it tends to be a very um, libertarian sort of posture, which allows me to sort of get along with people on both sides of the aisle. Cause I've, I've got at least how usually, Usually people on the right and the left can line up with about half of a libertarian's political stance. <laughs> yeah, keep, yeah, you're not going to get bumped out of any social gatherings. With no, the, no. I, I generally can know where to, um, with the, with the people on the right, I can usually talk about economics and with the people on the left, I can usually talk about more social issues and we generally get along just fine. Uh, it's, so. it's fantastic. It has, has your, <laughs> Your feedback on so many of these topics. I know we need to wrap up here, but I want to ask you, uh, you teach and work with a lot of talented younger professionals or new to the profession. Let's put it that way. Is there any kind of overarching advice that you offer someone says, hey, Jason, I'm thinking about getting into fundraising or getting into nonprofit. What are some of the things you might offer someone like that? Yeah, I was just talking to some of my students over at the college about this question, and I, I tend to be an advocate for young people to go work in the more mature and the larger shops. Interesting. Um, yeah. Because I don't want them to, uh, I, I tend to look at organizations the same way that I would look at human beings. Um, and um, 
And, and so, but which is not to say, I, I guess I need to clarify this. I want the more, I want them to go work for the more mature shop. So that's not necessarily, which do tend to be at least somewhat larger than the smallest of shops. Um, I think there's a lot of, for instance, my students were reading a case study the other day and uh, the case study described a young person who was just out of college, who was going to work for a nonprofit organization. And this, this woman in the, this young lady in the, in the case study was the first employee for this nonprofit. Right. Um, that to me is the wrong place for a young leader to want to go. They need to go to a place where the organization is at least mature enough to have um, individuals for whom they can glean wisdom and insight from even some of their, their less desirable characteristics. Um, I would rather, you know, a young person graduating from the college where I teach go to work for a, a small children's home where the executive director's been there for a decade and the staff's been there for, you know, a while and they can even observe some of the bad habits, but also observe some of the good ones. Um, so the trial by fire of that yeah, former yeah. example is not yeah, a good I, idea. Yeah. I, yeah. Let's not, because, because you don't have the, I mean, come on. I mean, if you're, especially these students I'm talking to, if you're 22 years old, um, you got a lot of things to learn. I mean, I was learning things. I'm still learning things now. I'm, I'm in my early forties and I think my thirties, you know, really kicked my tail. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I, I guarantee you at 28, I thought I knew everything. Um, you know, so yeah, we all I went through that phase, didn't we? Yeah. Right, right. And I'm sure right now I'm, I'm, I'm being tested in other ways, uh, learning other things. And I, and I want students, young people, new employees, you know, the young person coming out of the, coming out of college, going into this type of work to have the same benefit. Um, yeah. It's good advice. Yeah. In fact, it's exactly what I was hoping you'd share. And again, giving our listeners something to think about as they chart their course on the nonprofit path. Uh, Jason, we all have perhaps more time than we're used to, given that we're having to isolate. Perhaps we're considering things to read. <laughs> a feature of this podcast has been, tell me, is there a book that is on your shelf right now that you highly recommend in the professional development space? Yeah, there's probably two of them that uh, I have really become uh, particularly fond of. The first one is, uh, and I've actually got it right here in front of me. So the title is uh, Who Gets What and Why by Alvin Roth. Um, Roth is a Nobel Prize winner in economics. Nice. Um, and, um, and what Roth talks about, all of this research, Roth teaches at Stanford um, and Every, what, what he's talking about, and this is actually some research that's going into my next book, what Roth is talking about is what's called market design. And market design is the idea that sometimes our, our markets, and, and there is a market both in, in all these different sectors that we talked about. Um, there's a market in the public sector, in the private sector, and in the nonprofit sector. But what he's challenging us with is understanding how to design those markets. Um, and so when it comes to fundraising, for example, um, a lot of what he's talking about here is what are called matching markets um, <clears throat> and the way in which we match people up right? Um, and the way we understand how those matches are made and, and the way we understand how those matches, um, you know, really stick. Um, the other book, um, which I think is probably, probably more familiar to a lot of your listeners is a book that, uh, uh, 
Jeremy Hyman's and Henry Timms. Henry Timms is the uh, co-founder of Giving Tuesday. Oh yeah. Um, he wrote a book. They they co-authored a book called New Power. Um, uh, and the t- the pre-title, uh, the preface, uh, how power works in our hyper-connected world and how to make it work for you. Um, what what Henry Timms is talking about, and if if you think about if you think about a lot of people don't what they don't understand about Giving Tuesday is that Giving Tuesday was not a control. They did not approach it from a control-oriented sort of perspective. Um, uh, one of the stories that Tim's tells in his book, in that book, is the idea that within two years, the Giving Tuesday brand was being used by all sorts of organizations all over the world, and they were changing its name and restructuring it and doing different things with it. Um, but when you understand what, and I'm not going to give any spoilers on what the book, sort of the conclusions it comes to, but when you understand what these guys are talking about when they describe new power, uh, diff- different than old power, right. it doesn't come down to this notion of control. Um, and control, and, and like we were picking on efficiency earlier, control and efficiency tend to work hand in hand, and we're not in a control and efficient world anymore. Um, those, those values and virtues are sort of um, quickly slipping away. Um, and the more, and what Tim's would tell you, what him and his co-author would tell you is that if you begin to understand this, this sort of new power that exists, um, uh, you can better run these organizations. So for an executive director that's listening to your show, understanding what leadership looks like, um, is critically important, um, because there is a degree of power and power doesn't have to be used in sort of a negative sense. It can be a very neutral, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tool. Power is a tool. And if you understand it in a healthy way and understand how it plays out in our society, um, you can lead these organizations much better. Jason, that's fantastic. I've added them to my list. Great recommendations. I appreciate. <laughs> I will, of course, add them to the show notes along with your book, The War Thank for you. Fundraising Talent, which I think is a fantastic read. Of course, I'll link them to your podcast, which if they're not already, they need to be listening to. And where else can they go, Jason, to learn about the good work you're doing? Yeah, so uh, I am the founder of a consulting group called uh, Responsive Fundraising. So uh, we're, we're easy to find at responsivefundraising.com. And uh, uh, we have a team of consultants that are in various different markets around the country that uh, really advocate and, and teach and implement these, the responsive principles, a lot of the things that are sort of interwoven into everything that we've talked about here. So go to responsivefundraising.com. It's probably the quickest and fastest place to find uh, more information. I'm also on LinkedIn. That's probably where you and I, Patton, probably connected the first time. Yes, indeed. Where a lot of people find us. Um, I'm not hard to find there either. <clears throat> Jason, that's uh, most appreciated. Thank you for being on the path. It was a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Jason as much as I did. And quite honestly, we'll really absorb the thought-provoking nature of these topics, not just for your nonprofit organization or your future nonprofit organization, but for the sector as a whole. And how can we continue to assure we meet our mission demands and not spread ourselves too thin? Don't forget to check out the show notes available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. You can find out more about everything Jason and I discussed, his books, 
that he's added to our collective library, as well as other resources that we will include there. As always, please consider sharing this episode with someone else on the path who's considering fundraising either immediately or in their future. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe by going to the podcast page at pattonmcdowell.com, and you'll see links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of the other primary platforms. Don't miss out on our weekly Thursday editions, as well as some of the bonus episodes we have in preparation right now. Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for the causes that are most meaningful for you. I'll keep bringing you this content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.